previously on Popping Collars. We finally learned that a lot, all that all of these characters sincerely believed in God and felt that they felt deeply their own faith, and yet, and yet they smoked while wearing investments. Wow, yeah, that's not good for the fabric, and it's also not a good example visually. We saw the we saw Pope Pius the Thirteenth himself twice set a hot coffee mug directly on a mahogany desktop. Also not very edifying. Wow. <laughs> I would have stopped right there if I'd noticed. <laughs> Welcome to Popping Collars, the podcast that lives in the space between meaning and culture. My name is Greg Knight. I am the Director of Children and Youth Ministries at the Church of Bethesda-by-the-Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. We're going old school this time. We've got Betsy Gonzalez. Betsy, where are you? What are you doing these days? Uh, still, Still in Alexandria, Greg. It's not summer yet, and I'm still at the Episcopal High School. And Liz Easton. What's up, Liz? Where are you and what are you up to? Hey, Greg. I'm in Omaha, Nebraska, where it's hot, hot, hot. It was like 95 degrees today. And um, I'm the canon to the ordinary for the Diocese of Nebraska. And we have a special guest, the man that we like to call the godfather of popping collars, (laughs) Richard Lindsay. Welcome back, Richard. Uh, Where are you now and what are you doing? It's great to be back, and it's great to be back in the Bay Area. I am teaching at University of San Francisco in the Rhetoric and Language Department, and I also got to teach uh, at GTU this past spring um, at Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, Religion and Cinema. So I'm back in the saddle, so I feel really happy to be where I am. This is our 60-second episode, and the topic today is pop culture collections. So wait, whether wait, 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 it's- wait, really quick. This is our 62nd episode, like the episode that follows 61 and is between before 63, but it doesn't only last for 60 seconds. I thought we were going to have to like mini Everyone's doing mini- episodes now. It's okay. Mini- so should I say our 62th episode? <laughs> no, I think they got it. All right. <laughs> nobody, has, nobody has time to listen to a full podcast anymore. No, my attention span can't even handle that. <laughs> and the show's over. Thanks for coming, everybody. <laughs> All right. This is our 60-second episode, and the topic today is pop culture collections. Whether it's baseball cards, comic books, or Pokemon, there's no shortage of things to collect in pop culture. And in fact... You could argue that consumer culture, finding that one thing that makes people get so fanatical that they've got to get them all, is really the whole end goal of most popular media. Uh, Now, Richard, I know that in our past episodes with you, we've been able to talk about camp and queer lenses for pop culture, but we haven't really had the opportunity to explore kitsch culture yet. Uh, Would you care to give us a quick thumbnail of what kind of things are kitsch and how that idea shapes how we make meaning out of popular art? I'll do my best. Uh, So um, kitsch has a, in in recent years, it is something that takes on a kind of a manufactured quality 
so it might appear to be art uh, or it might appear to be have an element of art to it, but it's something that is is produced, mass produced. Uh, it, it isn't sort of like, um, you know, original. It's not an original piece of art. Um, and so we think of it as having to do with like things like, you know, collectibles, um, Hummel figurines or Precious Moons figurines or um, things from the 1950s that have kind of a space age look or something like that. But it has a much longer history than that. Um, it, it really had to, to do with, with sentimentality in art. And it's the element that kind of takes away, you know, art as a uh, deep expression of kind of deep ideas and kind of looks more at art as, as sentimentality. And some of the early cultural uh, students and, and, you know, kind of studiers of culture and writers of culture like Theodore Adorno uh, thought it was evil. Uh, they said it was the element of evil in art. Um, but he was coming from, as a Jewish person, coming from the perspective of Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany was evoking kitsch images and kitsch imagery of Germany and of of the sort of the fatherland. So, I mean, there were, you know, paintings, mass produced paintings of Hitler on a on a noble white steed in armor as though he's like a knight in shining armor. And so it was it was drawing on this romantic imagery and the sentimentality in order to bypass people's rationality and get right into their you know, their guts into their souls and to try to get them to commit. Um, one of the people who resurrected Kitsch, though, and kind of made it a little bit more acceptable was Andy Warhol and the pop artists, because then they took Kitsch items and through the repetition and just kind of repeating it over and over and over again, they forced you to look at it in a different way. And you started seeing pop art as a, it was a way of kind of like taking all of the detritus of visual culture and making it something that was was recycling it into something that was beautiful, recycling it into something that um, was, was artistic. And then there's also, the, there's also the, um, the suspicion that part of the reason why people dislike kitsch and the sentimentality of kitsch is that it actually celebrates feminine values. So it actually celebrates feminine values of home, family, children, love, these sort of warm feelings that are associated with women and not the kind of hard, rational, uh, you know, force of creation kind of stuff that we associate with high art. It, uh, there's some people who suspect that the reason that some people in the art world hate kitsch is because of misogyny. I, I like this idea that you uh, talked about kitsch sort of uh, highlighting this feminine quality, because I see that when people um, talk about their collections so whether it's collecting records or collecting vintage toys or posters or something like that, there's this idea that you are a caretaker for these yes. items. You protect these items. They are, they are your precious, right? And, and yeah. they are precious to you. Moments. And so you, you treat them as respectfully and, and honorably as, as you possibly can. You, you shelter them like, uh, your comic books, you you bag and board them. You you take care of these things because you are expected to love them and 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 care for them. I wonder about the relationship between because like I'm not a collector. I have a lot of things. Like I have a lot of books, but like I wouldn't call myself a book collector, you know. 
But I wonder about the relationship between collecting and materialism sort of spiritually, because it sounds like you're pointing to something different. Like there's a tenderness and an affection and a stewardship almost, Greg, in what you were describing of these objects. And yet, like as Christians, we really believe um, that, you know, you can't take this stuff to heaven and don't make an idol and, you know, all of those things that what, when does, um, a collection that is maybe nostalgic or important in some way cross the line into um, idolatry. Well, but it, you know that makes me think about relics and things like that. I mean, we've all been, you know, religion's been about collecting stuff for centuries. Whether it's you know the little collection we've got going in the Ark of the Covenant that we're carrying around. You know, we got our little thing of manna and we got all our jewels <laughs> and we got the two tablets. I mean, anything that God's come in contact with and we're just carrying it around and we build a special little house for it and it stays there all the time. And so we build it a permanent house. It's like, I'm like, oh, look, you know, the children of Israel, like the original collectors. Here they go. They got all the stuff that they need running around that Ark. And then later on, it becomes, you know, the knuckle of St. Paul that we're you know, embedding into some sort of, you know, or, or, you know, little splinters of the cross. Right. So there's, there's, there's the, there's those sorts of things too, like these kind of icons and, and different things like that, that at different times we have different relationships with how do we feel about images? But then I can imagine, you know, a small shrine in a family house that would have, you know, there's Mary and there's a candle and there's this, you know, and we have our things that, that give us great comfort but that's different. I mean, a shrine to Mary mm-hmm. and a collection of Power Rangers are two very different things, or are they? I mean, I guess that's the question that I'm asking. Like, it when you imbue such meaning on material objects that are not sacred, I guess. I guess what I'm wondering is, for people who do collect, is there like a transference of sacredness to these collectible? objects uh jj abrams right just did the last star wars movie the force mm-hmm. awakens so he's he was quoted uh in a recent article as saying that star wars isn't a movie franchise it's a religion yeah. um and the reason they said that people is, did people get mad they get mad about that <laughs> yeah people got mad at that people got mad about that what a shock people got mad but people they haven't, they so haven't checked out the church of the jedi i mean <laughs> right. Come on, Christians have been loving this stuff for years. <laughs> but uh, but the the movies become kind of a scripture, right? That people quote and sort of use for shorthand and 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 use to sort of make meaning out of their lives. And so as a result, things that were kind of mass produced toys, for instance, um, from the late seventies, early eighties, when the first Star Wars movies came out, and they they realized like, oh my gosh. Like we can put out a bunch of Kenner action figures and kids will buy these things. All of a sudden now, like those things have value and importance and preciousness to a Star Wars lover in a more meaningful way than maybe they did uh, initially, you know, like than maybe they did when they first came out. Like in my mind, yeah, they can be comparable. Like this idea of relics and this idea of, an original Luke Skywalker in a box, it can be comparable for, for some people who transfer that kind of meaning to it. I I would say that that's a problem for us. And especially when you think about like the most recent star Wars movies that are so obviously made for cross marketing purposes, that there were really intentional decisions made in the film 
so that there could be a particular kind of marketing. And um, I believe that that machine, that sort of um, consumerist machine is sinful in its very nature, just like written right into it. So that makes me nerd. Like, I'm not saying that Jediism, a person couldn't follow that as their religion. I suppose they could, but Mm -hmm. um, that makes me really nervous that um, that sort of capitalistic system could be become that spiritually magnetic. Because you're talking about experiential objects, right? Um, and, yeah. and an action figure can be experiential. Then there's a whole world of collecting that's around props and things that have originally been on movie sets, right? Right, so yeah, like, like the dress that, that someone wore. Or, yeah. Right, or like, this is my brick from, you know, the mm-hmm. Berlin Wall, or this was my, you know, like, the these are the things, these are the stones where Jesus walked. You know, that experiencing and touching something that somebody else an actor or something that's really important to you experience, then there's, there's a whole other level as opposed to a, Oh, well, this is my one Luke Skywalker doll of thousands of them. You know, this is the prop that this happened on. And we, that human experience, we're drawn to that things that have touched things that we love dearly. Right. Well, and I think especially when it comes to collecting children, like toys, I guess you could say it's a relic of your own self. It's a relic of your own experience of childhood and of innocence and of wonder. When my daughter plays with all those chokeable Fisher Price characters, the guys, the little people, the best with the castle, with the trap door and the school with the bell and the, you know, when she, we go home to my parents' house, plays with all of it, has a ritual around the, you know, the boathouse that floats in the bathtub and, and, you know, she's nine like almost 10 and she still loves it. Right. And mm-hmm. it's me touching that past too. Yeah. And, and I'm living it again through her. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for me. Okay. So there are two mythologies or two uh, sacred stories or two, um, let's say grand narratives that I grew up with. And one was the Jesus Christ story. And the other one was star Wars. And so uh, those, as far back as I can remember, those are the two stories that were formational in terms of forming me as the person that I am today. And I'm very lucky that my parents took me to church and that my parents took me to Sunday school and that they gave me that, that heritage and that they gave me that, that faith um, of something that is, is meaningful. But not everybody has had that experience um, but some people, um, but I think that the drive and the human desire to um, to engage in that in that grand narrative, to engage in that mythology, is is still there, even if someone was not brought up in the church. And I get a I get a little bit concerned when I when we start to say that you know the relics we have in the church are real. Of course, we don't have, I mean, I'm Presbyterian. We don't do relics, but I'm saying the, the relics we have in the church are real. The relics that the outside world has are not real. Uh, so the Luke Skywalker thing um, is, is not a real relic. There is a place where I agree with Liz, and it's in the machine part, like when, when she referenced the machine. Because I, I do think that there, there is a way that you're trained to participate in consumer culture through popular media. So for instance, you know, Disney's done this really well um, in getting these sort of franchises that have no end. 
And one of those is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's this idea, it's this movie series that started with Iron Man that has no ending. It's just all act two. And the recent movie that just came out, Guardians of the Galaxy, it, uh, volume two is like number 20 something in this series of movies that Marvel expects you to participate in as a community. Go to Go see every one of them watch every one of these characters in order to keep up with the story. It's like what you're being trained by Disney and Marvel in is something that comic book nerds like myself have known for years. You're being trained in continuity. You're being trained in understanding how comic book continuity works. And once you get sort of into that rhythm of, well, I got to buy the next issue because I got to see what happens well, now you're part of the consumer machine and it does feel like it's trying to hit the pleasure centers in your brain, not all of them, because you need to come back for more um, so that you'll buy the action figures, so that you'll buy the cereal, so that you'll buy the whatever it is that they put out there, backpacks, whatever. Um, and that's that's an intentional choice. That's not art. It's not about making the world a better place. It's It's about getting you connected to the machine. For some of these collectibles, there's almost like a false economy that comes up around them that I think sort of manipulates. It's almost like lottery tickets. Like you see people who don't necessarily have a ton of money to spend collecting Beanie Babies. Now this was years ago because it's like, you really dating yourself here, Liz. I know it's like, um, (laughs) Tag cover, mining tag for covers. gold. Get the smoke-free home. Okay, right. <laughs> it's like mining for gold. You know, like you're spending all this money on stuff that you can't really afford in the hopes that one of those things will end up being valuable. And I think that that's different than what you were describing, Richard, of like this touchstone of a meaningful piece of your own childhood. Well, Liz's comment makes me remember too, because man, I feel like I could work this metaphor all day on the Beanie Babies, right? So, what made well, on the Beanie Babies? What made them even more valuable were the errors, right? Mm-hmm. When yeah. the tag had an error in it, or whatever it was, that like somehow the flaw made it even more valuable yeah. mm-hmm. in the long run. Which and there's I a sermon in there. Somewhere. Oh, there's a sermon in there, <laughs> Beanie Babies, my friends. Well, yes. as, as someone who has visited the Precious Moments Chapel. No, so you go to the Precious Moments Chapel in Carthage, Missouri, and and it's, it's, uh, it is a chapel that has been built in the style of the Sistine Chapel. Um, you walk in, well, first you go through the gift shop. I mean, that's the first, you know, step. Um, so then you go into some very beautifully landscaped area and you go to the Precious Moments Chapel and the, and it's not so much the ceiling that's painted. It's, it's more the front altar, which is the most kitsch representation of the last judgment you will ever see. It is all of these doe eyed precious moments, children. Well, they're actually like teardrop eyed precious moments, children that are based. A lot of them are based on actual dead children. Um, Like he, people that wrote into him and talked to him and said, you know, this is, you know, this person, this is one of our children who died. And, and there's a little sign that says, welcome, that says, welcome to your heavenly home. And, and it's just this, just huge mural of precious moments, children. Um, There are Bible stories on the walls that are illustrated in precious moments style. 
Um, but I think some of the really interesting stuff is that as you go into some of the side chapels, there some of them are actually to people like like Sam Butcher, the artist, actually lost a son, and so he he painted he painted a memorial to his son in the Precious Moments style. With with it's very strange because it's like they're supposed to be children, but there's obviously ones that are like mom and dad, and then there's there's he died in a car accident. So there's a painting to that. And you realize that the, the thing behind all of this is really dead children. That's really what's motivating him as an artist. Mm-hmm. And and the whole and and you can actually, you know, there are versions, there are precious moments, headstones you can order for children that have died. And and you realize that that's kind of what's behind all of this is mm-hmm. this and and that this sort of kitsch thing is a way of, for some people, of dealing with loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know whether my grandmother was always a stuffed animal person. Like, I have no idea, right? My grandmother died. Um, you know, towards the end of her life, the number of stuffed animals she had increased. Mm. And I don't know where they all came from. I don't think she was, wasn't some mail order. What I don't know. They just kind of started coming into the house. So it was like these little banks of stuffed animals that kind of, as she was aging as her body was changing and not always her faithful friend anymore, there was something so comforting about having these items around, even as she's paring down her living space and moving from a home into an assisted living situation and having these beanie babies. And so now, you know, we all each took some and our kids have played with them for, you know, periods of time and, and have dispersed them amongst the family, but there is some comfort in that, in terms of loss and the, the kitchifying of children in a general sense, looking at those precious moments, figurines, it makes me think about every time we've cutified kids in a, in a nativity pageant on daddy's bathrobe. And, you know, and it's like, are we surrounding that experience with some theological underpinnings and really talking with them about kind of what's going on, or are we putting them up there with the spray paint painted crown Royal bottle as a, as a wise man? Like, Oh, isn't Johnny cute. It's interesting though, that the, with the precious moments chapel, the way that you described it, Richard, that if underneath there's this artistic desire to make an entry place for people in the most horrible suffering yeah. Right. That when we, we don't, we have a very difficult time talking about the death of children mm-hmm. and here he erected an entire building to it. So it's almost like, it's sort of subversive in that way. Like I'm, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to have this conversation that none of us wants to have in this really weird way. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder too, if there's an element of a reward that comes with like this collecting Culture. So, for instance, um, just using Precious Moments as an example, from what I know, and I don't know a whole lot about Precious Moments culture, but I believe that there are some figures that are only available at the chapel. Yes. Is that, is that yeah. correct? Yeah. So, like, you wouldn't be able to buy them unless you essentially made a pilgrimage, right, yes. to Carthage, Missouri, to, to pick up these um, to pick up these these uh, special figures it it makes me wonder is there something in our dna are we coded in a way um that we're looking we're looking for some kind of special reward and 
and it doesn't necessarily have to be something physical, although something being physical helps because then you could put it in a display case or, you know, on a shelf or something like that. But, um, you know, I'm thinking of like, uh, Fitbit challenges or something like that, where it's like, I'll earn a virtual medal if I get like three more steps, you know, it's like this kind of reward thing. And that medal is not real, right. But it is feeding some kind of reward center in your brain. Well, that's what they say about social media now is that the same, you know, parts of our brain that get excited when we gamble gets excited when we get lots of likes on a post, Mm -hmm. you know, so we're like, we're collecting approval or recognition or something. Pop culture is complicated a little bit. Like it seems straightforward and pretty easy, but once you start getting emotions and feelings and ideas of value and stuff like that involved, it also uh, brings to light a little bit of the complexity because I mean, we get this all the time of people saying, well, why did you do a show on that? Well, we did a show on that because there's somebody out there that really likes that thing Mm -hmm. and really values that thing and wants to, wants to be near it, wants to collect it, wants to talk about it, wants to hear other people talk about it. And um, and because it doesn't have value for us or for somebody else, doesn't mean that it doesn't have value for somebody, you know, out there in the world. You know, it's like at, at some point we are creatures of a commercial culture. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to separate ourselves out from, from the commerce that we take part in. And so my sense is we have to find meaning with whatever tools we're given. Um, if that's Thomas Kincaid, then that's Thomas Kincaid, you know? And, and so I guess I'm a little less critical of the fact that some of this is, is commercialized. I think anything can be made into an idol. Um, but at some point we just got to say, this is the world we live in. And we live in this world where commercial products are what's sold to us as our culture and our art. And either we make meaning with that, or we, we, we disassociate ourselves and disconnect ourselves from our world. segment of the show this is uh time for our staff picks this is a chance for one of our hosts to highlight uh something that they've been reading watching listening to uh in pop culture and inform all of us of what it is Uh, oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) betsy just held up a java speaking of consumer culture he's gonna take over for me So Liz, do you have our staff pick today? What I do. I do have a staff pick today. This is hot off the presses because I just watched this movie last night. It's a documentary film that's on Netflix right now called Embrace. It was it had a pretty big marketing campaign that I saw going around on Facebook for quite a while. Um, and then I sort of I was like, oh, I want to watch that. And then I forgot about it. And then last night I saw that it was on Netflix. So I watched it. But it's a documentary film by the Australian 
filmmaker. I don't know if she actually made this film, but it's her idea and she stars in it. Um, Taryn Broomfit, who is sort of a body image activist. And she went viral several years ago when she posted a before and after picture of herself on Facebook where the before she was participating in a bodybuilding tournament and the after was sort of her postpartum body um, after she had given up on all of the insanity of training for bodybuilding. And it's really beautiful. She's nude on a stool and it's very tasteful and she's grinning and it's just a darling picture. And that was the after. So it was the complete opposite of the typical before and after weight loss pictures that you see. And the picture just went viral, got her a ton of attention. So the documentary is in large part, I think a letter to her young daughter sort of saying, I really hope that you don't have to experience the pain that I did in not loving the body that I live in um, and having to go through this journey to learn how to love it. And she goes all around the world meeting with women who have been affected in one way or another by body image issues and really explores in a way that's not surprising. Like it's not like I didn't know any of this stuff, but the ways that media contributes to women in particular and men are of course affected by this as well, but Um, women just hating their bodies and spending so much of their lifetimes just literally hating the body that they live in. And she really exposes just how, um, how tragic that really is. But anyway, but it was also really hopeful and uplifting and a reminder that um, we can change some of this. And I think that you see now like major fashion magazines having quote unquote plus size women on the covers. And that's not because they really care that much about representations because they know that women are longing for that type of image and are more likely to buy their magazine. So you hope that's a move in the right direction. But anyhow, it's called Embrace. It's really good. Cool. Wow. Uh, the characters from the 80s uh, in cartoons and stuff like that are now all thinner. Yeah, um, so like yeah. my daughter is growing up with a thinner strawberry shortcake and a thinner My Little Pony and thinner like everything's. And I mean, if it's she a watches, pony. Yeah, and if she watches older movies, she uh, says that they look silly somehow. But they're ponies. What? You can find Poppin' Collars on Twitter at Poppin' Collars. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Poppin' Collars. Uh, or you can find us on our website, poppincollegepodcast.com. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts, Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, all of the usual suspects. Uh, all we ask is that you subscribe, like, review, rate and review our show. Um, that way more people will find us. And uh, also we are featured on EpiscopalCafe.com each and every single time. We love EpiscopalCafe.com. We know you will as well. Check them out for all your Episcopal news needs and opinion needs and beyond. And with that, that is Popping College for this time. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Richard, for coming on the show. We will see you next time. Keep those callers popped. <laughs> <laughs>